Good morning, Veritas. Hey, it's great to be able to uh, worship God together. It's great to be able to hear of him working in the Cedar Rapids area and also halfway across the world, everywhere in between. And so we just continue to look for him to spread his gospel, to spread his good news. And it's great to be able to be a church that celebrates that and that desires that. And so it's good to be with you. My name is Matt Holford. If I haven't met you, uh, I'm on staff here. one of the pastors. I get to serve on our adult ministry team. And it's my hope uh, that we really take advantage, like Michael said, of the last couple of Sundays in our Life of Christ series. And so if you are just joining us or if, if you're newer, we've looked at numerous things so far. Right, we have two more weeks left. We've looked at uh, the birth of Christ. We've looked at some of the things that he did while he was here on earth. We looked at his identity, who he is. We looked at his uh, death and resurrection. We looked at his commission. Right? We looked last week how he said, all authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And he says, I'll be with you always. And then next week we're looking at his return. Which is great. And so you're probably asking, like, what, what's today? What are we looking at today? Great question. Many Christians are familiar with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Many Christians are familiar with the Great Commission. Many Christians are familiar with the fact that at some point in the future, Christ will come back. But that begs the question, what is he doing now? What's what's going on now? That's a question that many of us don't think about. We don't know the answer to. We would probably say, he's probably doing something. Something. Not sure exactly what that is. Not sure exactly why that matters. But what's he doing? He ascended in the past. He's coming back in the future. But what is he doing today? Many of you would probably intellectually say, yeah, it makes sense that he's active, that he's moving, that he's working. But if you're honest, you might be like, I, I, I don't know how. I don't know how. I don't sense his activity. I don't sense his presence. Veritas, I get to interact with a lot of you over the course of weeks and months, and um, I know firsthand a lot of the burdens that many of you are carrying. I know the relational conflict that exists in your lives. I know the marital problems that some of you are having. I know the financial hardships, the anxiety, the doubt, the worry, the burden, the uncertainty, the lack of hope. Many of you are asking, where is Jesus? What what is he doing? If he was doing something, if, if, if he was working, if he was present, things would be different, wouldn't they? Great questions. So the question we're going to answer this morning is, what exactly is Jesus doing right now? What is he doing in the life of a believer right now? It's my hope that as the morning goes on, we answer that question, one, but then two, the answer causes us just to worship like crazy and be filled with hope. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews 7 this morning. So go ahead and flip to that or open that on your app. We're going to be kind of dancing all over the place, but we're really going to ground what we talked about this morning in Hebrews 7, verse 25. It says, this will be up on the screen as well, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's one verse. It's a short verse. But there's a lot of content in that one verse. There's a couple words in there we don't use very often. Uttermost. Last time you said that? Yesterday? Ten years ago? Never? Uh, challenge for you today. Use that in a sentence today somehow. Uttermost. Next one, intercession. Two words we don't use very often. But before we dive into those, we have to look at how this verse begins. It says, consequently. Consequently. Another way to say that is therefore or as a result. Before we look at the rest of this passage, why does it say consequently? We have to ask, what was mentioned previously? What would the original audience have understood or known that would have caused the author to say consequently? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You'll look at context this morning. We're going to kind of take a, a broad picture and kind of narrow it in as we go on. We're going to start kind of, kind of nerdy. So if you like that, great. If you don't, stay with me. But in the first few books of the Old Testament, I told you we're starting broad. First few books of the Old Testament, God made a covenant with who? Remember? Abraham. Father Abraham. Right? Made a covenant with Abraham saying that your family will become the nation of Israel. Your family will be my people. God's people, the Israelites. Then it went on. Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt. God gave Moses and the Israelites the law on Mount Sinai. They made a covenant with God. They built a tabernacle, which represented God's presence to them. And there were priests who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. Super high-level overview. But we have to be somewhat familiar with this old way of doing things, with this old covenant between God and his people. We have to be at least familiar with the fact that there were priests and that there were sacrifices. You see, the priests in the Old Testament acted as a mediator or a representative between God and the people. They interceded or they intervened on their behalf. The priests represented one to the other. That was their job. That's what they did. Now to the book of Hebrews. We're getting more narrow. We're honing in a little bit. Hebrews was most likely written to a Jewish Christian audience. Okay, so, so these people were followers of Christ, yet they were very, very, very familiar with the old covenant, with the old way of doing things. All this stuff about priests and sacrifices and Moses and all these people would have made really, really good sense to them. But because they were being persecuted, they were wavering in their faith. They were questioning, is this worth it? And so the author of Hebrews is trying to convince them. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is better. He's saying, remember, Jesus is better. Yeah, there was Abraham, and there was Moses, and there are angels, and there's the sacrificial system, and there's the law, and there's priests, and there's all those things. But Jesus is better than all those and for us, it's like, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Jesus is better. You take old system, sacrifices, blood of goats and lambs and other things, Jesus, perfect sacrifice, yes, that, that makes sense. Jesus is better. But for the original audience, that would have been a profound statement for them. Once again, he wants them to know Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. So now leading up to Hebrews 7, 
we see the mention of Levitical priests, and they were to represent God to the people, represent Israel before God. They're to offer sacrifices on the people's behalf. These priests were mediators. They were interceding or going between God's people. They were representing God to the people. That's what priests in the Old Testament did. That was their job. That's what they did. You see, priests were an important part of the Old Covenant. But there were two problems with this, these Levitical priests. Levitical meaning they were from the tribe of Levi. They were Levites. One was they died. They died. They were people. They had a lifespan. They didn't live forever. You needed more than one priest. Secondly, they, they were sinners. They messed up. They made mistakes. And so not only did they have to offer sacrifices for the people, but also for themselves. They weren't perfect, and they died. They were temporary, and they were immoral. You see, the Old Testament sacrificial system didn't solve the problem that humanity needed to have solved which is the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of people. The old system couldn't do that. The old system did point to a new system, did point to the need for something better. Okay, we started wide, we're getting more narrow. We're about to verse 25. In Hebrews seven seventeen, we see Psalm 104 reference. It says, Jesus was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You guys heard of him before? Yep. So, this is a prophecy from Psalm 110. Melchizedek was the only example in the Old Testament of a priest who was also a king. A king who was also a priest. See, in the Old Testament, that didn't happen. Priests were from the tribe of Levi. Kings, David, Solomon, were from the tribe of Judah. One wasn't the other. Yet, Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek, the prophecy is pointing to the Messiah being both a priest and a king, both a king and a priest. See, like Melchizedek, he would be both. And because of that, Jesus is better than the old system. He's perfect. He lives forever. He's better than the previous thing. Okay, we're almost at verse 25. Verse 19 says, The law made nothing perfect, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It's pointing to something greater. Verse 22 says, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. Verse 23 to 24, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he, Jesus, continues forever. So verse 25, Consequently, Consequently, remember what we just summarized. Consequently, as a result of the Old Testament sacrificial system not being able to cleanse us of our sin and save us. Consequently, as a result of the Levitical priests not being perfect and dying. Consequently, as a result of Jesus being the great high priest who is perfect and who will live forever. As a result of that, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Consequently, Jesus is able to save. He's done all that is necessary for us, our salvation. He's perfect. He lives forever. His sacrifice on the cross was a once and for all thing. It doesn't need to be repeated. 
it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole entire world. He's the spotless lamb. He's the perfect sacrifice who's nailed to the cross in our place, taking on the punishment that we as sinners deserve. You see, the Old Testament sacrificial system could not do what Jesus could, but it pointed to the need for something better, and that is Jesus. He's our great high priest. He's different from any priest that came before him. He has the power to save. He has the power to forgive sin. He's perfect. He's forever. Jesus can save all that come to God through him. He's able to save to the uttermost. There's that word. Another way to think of uttermost is to the farthest or furthest or always or completely. That's the gospel. It's going to use of Jesus. He's able to save completely to the farthest. That through faith in Christ, our sins are placed on him and his righteousness is attributed to us. That's good news. That's the grace of God. Because he's able to save to the uttermost, there is not one person alive who has sinned too severely to not be covered by God's grace. He's a perfect savior who saves to the uttermost. You can't do something bad enough. You can't do something too many times for God's grace to not be able to cover that. If you're in here this morning and you're kind of interested in this church thing or you're attracted to this for whatever reason or you want to learn more or quite frankly, if somebody drug you here and you're like, I don't want to be here, but he or she made me. Regardless, if you're thinking to yourself, there is no way that God could love me or accept me. If you're thinking that, this verse says you're wrong. You're wrong. There is nothing greater than God's grace. There is nothing that can outrun, there's nothing that can outsin the grace of God. How is that possible? Well, this verse tells us. It says that he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? Through him, through Jesus. How? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to intercede on our behalf. Remember, the priests of the Old Testament interceded or mediated on the behalf of Israel but they couldn't save people. But a superior priest, Jesus, who's also king over all, can and does save. You see, we needed Jesus to intercede for us on the cross. We, we needed that to take place. So through faith in him, our, our sin is placed on him and we receive his perfection. That's how he's able to save to the uttermost. That's how he's able to save people. You know what I'm but that, that's still in the past. That, that happened previously. We, we covered that a few weeks ago. What's he doing now? Verse 25 reveals the answer if you look more closely. It says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. What's he doing right now? He's interceding on our behalf. He's making intercession for us. He's interceding for us right now at the right hand of God the Father. You see, our salvation was accomplished on the cross. He said, it, it is finished. Right? Through faith in him, we are made new. We are made alive. We are made his sons and daughters. But, maybe a better word is, and he's still working right now, and we are dependent upon his intercession this very minute. You see, he's applying what was accomplished on the cross. 
He's the great high priest who's perfect, who's forever, who's always went. What is he doing today? He's interceding. He's not relaxing. He's not chilling out. He's not taking a break between his first and second coming. He's interceding for believers. What does this look like? He's talking to God on our behalf. He's talking to God on our behalf. We see this in the New Testament, a couple of examples. In John 17, we see how Jesus is praying for his disciples and for future believers. We don't have time to, to cover this right now, but if you write John 17 down, I want to encourage you to look at that sometime this week. You're going to see how Jesus prayed for you, how he prayed for future believers. In Luke 21, 31 through 32, Jesus prays for Peter. He says this, this this is incredible. He says, Simon, Simon, Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus is praying for Peter's faith to not fail. Do you know what happens right after this? Jesus is arrested. And Peter boldly stands up for his friend, right? No, no. He denies him three times. I don't know him. I never saw him. I don't know what you're talking about. Peter failed, yes. But did his faith fail? No. What happens after the women run and tell the disciples the tomb's empty? Peter hauls it to the tomb. What happens in the early church in, in, in Acts? This prayer is answered. Who did God use in incredible ways to build the church in Acts? Peter. And Peter strengthened his brothers just like this prayer requests. You see, Jesus is interceding for his followers. He's representing us to God the Father. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, Jesus is interceding for you. He's interceding on your behalf. He's in heaven at the right hand of God, acting on your behalf. How? First, he's interceding and pleading our case to the Father. Right? Through faith in Jesus, we are seen as righteous. First John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, he's our advocate before God the Father. He secured our salvation on the cross when he said it is finished. And he's continuing to work on our behalf. He's interceding for us. He's applying our salvation every minute of every day. When we sin, when we do something stupid, when we make a mistake, for those of you who don't know Jesus, the verdict is guilty. Guilty. But for those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, Jesus is saying, my blood covered that. He or she has my perfection. He or she is forgiven. He or she is innocent. He intercedes by pleading our case before the Father. Second, Jesus frees us from condemnation. Towards the end of Romans 8, Paul asks a series of questions. He says, who can be against believers? Who can condemn them? Who can separate them from the love of Christ? And Paul later reveals the answer and says, nobody. But in verse 34, we see, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? Interceding for us. 
You see it again. He's interceding for us. The question is who is to condemn? Who's to condemn? As followers of Christ, who tries to condemn us? Lots of people. (laughs) Our own hearts try to condemn us, as we see in 1 John 3. Our emotions, our desires, our thoughts will try to condemn us. We see when we make a mistake, when we tend to wallow in our circumstances, ah, kick ourselves. How could you? What were you thinking, you idiot? You're not worth it. God can never use you, let alone approve of you. Do you ever tell yourself that? We often accuse ourselves. Others condemn us. Others accuse us. Question your faith below the gospel. If that's not enough, Satan, the accuser, tries to condemn us. We see in Revelation 12, 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The accuser of our brothers is Satan. He's been thrown down who accuses them, how often? Day and night before our God. Satan's the accuser. He accuses brothers and sisters in Christ before God day and night. It's a comforting thought. Satan hates God, can't stand Christians, hates seeing God's glory throughout the earth. So he's standing before God day and night, accusing us, trying to condemn us, trying to convince God that he shouldn't love us, that his grace shouldn't apply to us. He shouldn't have mercy on us. He's not worthy. He doesn't trust you. See how many times he fails? How could she choose the world over you so many times? Oh, that person follows you? Hmm. Then why are they spending so much time making a name for themselves on social media and scrolling when they could be spending time in prayer? But they don't. That's your child? Really? Accusation. Accusation. Condemn. Condemn. See, Veritas, we can put our Sunday best on and we can put a face on and kind of pull it all together and act like we have everything taken care of. But can you imagine if we came here on a Sunday and there was like a a thought bubble or or a word picture above us that had our top five sins we're struggling with? All of us? Like, hmm, ah. It's like, why are you up there preaching? (laughs) Can you imagine that? The reality is that Satan knows humanity and he knows what humans struggle with. And he has no problem pointing those out to God. A lot of people try to condemn us. A lot of people, yourself even, Satan, tries to accuse us. But Romans 8.34 says, who according to that can condemn a follower of Christ? The answer is nobody. Nobody. Why? Because of Jesus, because of what he's doing right now, because he's interceding on our behalf, because He is our high priest who lived, died, and was raised. He's at the right hand of the Father right now as we speak, representing those who have put their faith in Christ. He's our advocate before God the Father. That should be very, very comforting. He's standing in the throne room of God, pleading on your behalf. He's doing battle on the front lines. Those are my children, they are forgiven. They're accepted. 
They have my righteousness. What I accomplish on the cross is credited to them. He's interceding on our behalf. That, that should blow your mind. It should blow your mind. There are certain realities that after you understand them or, or know them should really change everything in your life. This is one of those realities. That Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest, who's forever, is standing right now, interceding on the behalf of his followers. That should cause you to have great confidence. That should cause you to have great hope, not in yourself, but in Jesus who's interceding for us. So Veritas, the question becomes, what, what, what do we do? Like, what, what do we do with this? And as much as I like five-point checklist and uh, these three things are your next steps, it's harder to come at something like this from this passage. How do we respond to a truth that is so profound that Jesus is interceding on our behalf, that he's represented before God the Father? Like, how, how do we respond to those things? Here's a possible response or challenge. Pretty simple. Fix your gaze on Jesus above all else. Fix your gaze on Jesus above all else. Continually remind yourself of how great a Savior he is. You see, in our day and age, it is so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to get sidetracked. It's so easy to focus on things or worry on things or have anxiety on things that don't matter. We often lose sight of the big picture. My family and I recently went to Montana, northwest Montana, Glacier National Park. Absolutely incredible, beautiful, breathtaking, all those things. We had so many great encounters with wildlife, incredible scenery, tons of memories for my family and I. With that said, one of our activities on a variety of days was hiking, which was fun because the scenery is incredible. But I often found myself so focused on what was right around me that I lost sight of the big picture. There were times we were walking on trails and there were thick brush and uh, pine trees and just vegetation where it's like, I, I can't see very far to my left or right in front of me. So I'm focusing on what's, what's right here. Other times I was worried about my kids tripping or falling off a cliff. So I was focused on like them. Never happened. I guess never. A kid tripped, they never fell off a cliff, which is a good, good thing, right? Other times I was thinking in my head, like, what would happen if I had to use this bear spray in my pocket? I'm pretty sure I could. Pull the pin, push the trigger, problem solved. Other times I just found myself focusing on the back feet of whatever kid was in front of me. The point is I was focusing on myself and the here and now, the immediate, and I was completely losing sight of the grander beauty that was all around me. And it wasn't until I lifted my head up. It wasn't until I focused on the bigger picture that I was blown away. My kids constantly made fun of me. Dad, chill out. A phrase that I was saying, this is insane. This is insane. This is insane, insane, insane. Dad, we know. But it was. It was incredible. My encouragement to you is to look up. Is to fix your eyes on Jesus. It's so easy to get fixated on things around us, on our immediate surroundings, on the most urgent thing, to think only of ourselves, 
look up and continually remind yourself, Veritas, of who Jesus is, of what he's accomplished, and be blown away by the fact that he is constantly interceding for his children. If you find yourself asking, where is Jesus? What is he doing? You're probably focusing on the wrong thing. What claims your focus? What has your attention? Veritas, what can we do? My encouragement to you this morning is to turn your attention to Jesus, our perfect Savior, who lives to intercede on our behalf. One more time. Turn your attention to Jesus, our perfect Savior, who lives to intercede on our behalf. See, a main argument in Hebrews is Jesus is better. He's better than, he's better than, he's better than. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? What priority does Jesus have in your life? How much of your attention and your time and your energy and your thoughts go towards him? It's your question's worth considering. Draw near to him through his word, through prayer, through fellowship with other believers, through gathering on Sunday morning in corporate worship. Draw near to him by orienting your heart and your posture and your life towards him. You see, when we fix our gaze, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're going to be compelled to worship him. We're going to really understand how great of a high priest he really is. We're going to comprehend the fact that he's interceding for us right now. And if we fix our eyes on him, we're going to be filled with hope and confidence, not from us, but from him. Anxiety and fear and worry and doubt and despair, well, they might still be there. Well, they might still be right around us. Are going to fade when we understand that nobody can condemn those in Christ. Because, why? Because he's interceding for us all the time. Because he's on the front lines combating all the accusations against us. If we quit worrying about everything right around us in our immediate vicinity and instead lifted our gaze to our great high priest, I think our church would be different than the world around us. We'd be marked by authentic worship. How can you not cry out and worship and praise Jesus who intercedes for us, who's perfect, who's forever? I think our church will be marked by joy, not in our circumstances, but in spite of our circumstances. Because we can rejoice in the object of our affection, who is Jesus Christ. I think we'd take the Great Commission seriously. We'd understand that nobody is outside of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Like, nobody's done something too bad that his grace can't cover them if they put their faith in him. We'd be motivated to share the gospel more probably. And if people laugh at us or condemn us or mock us, who cares? Who cares what they think? Because Jesus is interceding for us before God the Father. And he's saying, forgiven. My son, my daughter, 
I want to finish by looking at Hebrews 7, 26 through 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is perfect. He lives forever. And because of this, we can have confidence and hope in our Lord who offered himself as a sacrifice. He's superior to anyone. He's superior to anything. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your devotion. Fix your gaze upon him. Have confidence and have hope in the fact that no matter what is happening, Jesus Christ is interceding on your behalf if you've put your faith in him. It's incredible. When you stumble, when you sin, when you doubt, when you're living in fear, when you're living in anxiety, worry, whatever the case is, he's interceding for you. He has you in his grasp and he can't let go. It's against his character. And because Jesus is both king, ultimate authority, and priest, able to save, the fact that he's interceding for you should give you great confidence, should give you great hope, and should cause you to Fix your gaze on him all the time. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you, in fact, are our great high priest, that you are perfect, that um, you stand in the gap. That God, when we are accused, when us or others or, or Satan is like, not good enough, not worthy, liar, you're there saying, because of me, because of my blood, they're forgiven. Because of me, because of my blood, they are seen as righteous. And God, we thank you for that, Lord. I just pray that our, our hope and our affection for you just continues to grow, God. That, that we can worship you, we can give you the honor and the praise that you deserve. It's in your name we pray, amen.